If you'll join me in Ruth chapter 3, Ruth 3, we continue in our series through uh, the book of Ruth. You can find it on page 223 in the Blue ESV Bible. We're going to look at the entire chapter this morning. The title of our sermon is Worthy. The key words for our worshipers in training are feet, barley, and redeem. I was reading an article uh, this week, and it was detailing the rise of online dating and how the introduction of apps on our devices like Tinder and Hinge and OkCupid and all of these have completely changed the way that Western singles uh, interact with one another. And my own conversations with friends and acquaintances that are, uh, that are single have confirmed for me much of what the article had to say. We're just seeing the coming of age of a generation that has generally only known life in digital space through social media and phone applications and everything else. We're seeing the coming of adulthood of a people uh, in our uh, culture who have always lived with these things. Now, most of us, some of us at least, are old enough to remember uh, life without cell phones. You had to stop on the side of the road and put a quarter in a pay phone to make a phone call, or you went out and, uh, and you, didn't, you didn't get a text message that you could respond to immediately because it didn't exist. Well, a uh, new generation of adults have only lived in a world where those things are a part of that world, and so it was very, uh, it was very soon to turn into another means in which to meet and interact with people in the dating space, in the space of interacting for relationships. You know, many of us, uh, especially those of us who are married now, we lived in a time when we had to meet people in person, where we had to talk to one another face to face. Traditionally, the guy had to have enough guts to go up to the girl and ask her if she wanted to go on a date with him. And if this was early enough in her life, he even had to go up to the door at her house and knock on the door and meet her parents and talk to her dad and hear the typical, you're carrying precious cargo in your car, don't do anything that you wouldn't want me to do to you kind of speech that he would get. But now, things have changed dramatically, haven't they? The article highlighted that, quote, mobile dating went mainstream about seven years ago. By 2012, it was overtaking online dating. In February, one study reported there were nearly 100 million people, perhaps 50 million on Tinder alone, using their phones as a sort of all-day, every-day, handheld singles club where they might find a sex partner as easily as they'd find a cheap flight to Florida. One 27-year-old man was interviewed for the article, and he said... It was like ordering from an online food delivery service, but you're ordering a person. Another young man said, I'm on Tinder, Happen, Hinge, OkCupid. It's all a numbers game. Before, I could go out to a bar and talk to one girl. Now I can sit at home on Tinder and see hundreds and talk to maybe 15 of them at one time without spending any money at all. And for many, the article points out that there is no intention of ever spending any money. People don't go out together to get to know one another at all. They don't go to dinner. They don't go to a movie. Instead, they get together for Netflix and chill. We all know what that means. They hook up, and 20 minutes later, they have another notch in their belt. They 
never talk in person again. One girl being interviewed even said after one of these moments, before she even left the guy's apartment, he was already back on Tinder to find his next person. The reality is that the idea of meeting a person in person talking to them, getting to know them, understanding something about them, being interested in anything of a lasting relationship has sadly become something that a very small minority of young people are even involved in anymore. Now, I'm thankful that young people in faithful churches are meeting other young Christians in the church and building relationships with them. That's how it should be. But the temptation, the the pressure to find someone is high for some people. And sadly, the thought is that we have to resort to these other means. We get sucked into the cultural norm. And as a result, there are some alarming numbers in the latest census data. For example, in America, the average age for marriage now for young women is 27.4 and 29.5 for men. That is seven years later in life than just 50 years ago. So the average age for a man to get married anymore is almost 30 years old. So sociologically, the hookup culture, the accessibility to more and more people to try different options, to to play the field, has led to less marriage. And among those marriages, higher rates of divorce and now horrifically in some cities in the United States, more babies are being aborted than born. With all the feminism and liberation and talk of Me Too and toxic masculinity and contracts of consent and on and on it goes today, things have only appeared to get worse and worse, so much so that young guys don't even talk to young women anymore unless it's on a dating app, and they sure don't take them on an actual date. Meanwhile, the statistics remain the same that the most successful people in the West are those who have graduated high school, gotten married, and then had children in that order. 98% of couples who do these simple things in that order are living in the middle class and would describe themselves as relatively happy. So you see, no matter how much things seem to change, we see just how much they stay the same. The reality is that the Lord has designed men and women to interact in specific ways, and in those ways he has determined how relationships between men and women are supposed to take a certain shape. And in doing so, they're supposed to lead to certain ends. And for us, as Christians, it's very easy to look at everything and say, of course it's not working out. It was never intended to be that way. Dating and relationships were never intended to be about a selfish fulfillment of a fleshly desire. They were actually intended, in many ways, for exactly the opposite. Yes, for companionship. Yes, for lifelong friendship and procreation. But also for our sanctification. Paul talks about that. Relationships between men and women were made to make us holy. Sadly, that's a very rare pursuit, even among Christians today. And out of the gate, I want to commend many of our young people here at RBC. As far as I know, you're having healthy relationships. You're talking to one another in person. You're trying to spend time with each other, communicating through real interactions instead of emojis and one-liners. You can actually have conversations that don't take place on your phone. If that's not the case, put your phone down. 
Look them in the eye. Have a real relationship with a real person. Talk to them about their real life. And guys, it is on you. Pursue the girl in person. On your phone is not a relationship. It's a cowardly way of hiding behind the possibility that you might get rejected. You have to swallow your pride and realize that you're not God's gift to the universe. She might say no. And that's okay. We all need that. We all need to get knocked down a little bit. And sad for you, I'm sorry, I already married the most beautiful woman alive, but there are other wonderful, beautiful women out there, and they're not really interested in silly games like Tinder and Hinge and all these other things. They want to meet a real person. And so the difference between now and the past is that in the past... You had, to, you had to face the challenges of meeting someone and your, your space was limited and, and so you didn't, you didn't get to meet a ton of different people. But now the field is, is vast and the numbers are large and so no one wants to settle because it could just be a little bit better. So we want to keep kicking the can down the road. Well, why do I bring all this up? Well, as we've been working through the book of Ruth, we've seen the unfolding of what I've called one of the oldest Cinderella stories in history. Remember the story began in a, a pretty dark place. We were, we were struck at the beginning with the, the family of Elimelech. His wife Naomi, their two boys, remember uh, there was a famine. And going against the promises of God to always provide for his people, even in the midst of, of difficult times, they decided instead, Elimelech decided to take his family into the land of Moab to escape the famine. And when they got there, the two boys did what God had commanded them not to do and married foreign, foreign women. He, they married Moabite women, and within 10 years of being there, Elimelech died, as did the two of his sons. The result then was that three women became widows without children. Soon after, the famine broke in, uh, in Israel, and so Naomi headed back to Bethlehem, and Ruth, her daughter-in-law, decided to go with her. Nevertheless, the end of chapter 1 we saw was Naomi saying, The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She assumed her circumstances were worse than they really were. And as a result, she failed to see the blessings that surrounded her, and specifically she failed to see the blessing of Ruth, who abandoned everything to be with her. And then we saw in chapter 2 that God's blessing of provision was so clear that even Naomi, in the midst of all of this, began to awaken from her spiritual slumber. We were introduced to this godly man by the name of Boaz, a relative of Naomi's husband. Now Ruth was taking refuge among the people of God. She walked away from being a Moabite to that way of life, to their gods and to their traditions. And instead, she yoked herself up with the people of God in their land. And she was blessed to find herself gleaning in the field that just so happened to belong to this man named Boaz. Now remember, Boaz was exceedingly kind to Ruth. He took an obvious attraction to her and not only provided for her and gave her a place to glean in the field with safety and protection and abundant provision, but he also gave to her and to Naomi far more beyond anything that any reasonable person could have even thought 
he would give. And so Naomi begins to see God's blessing through Ruth and what God is doing providentially through Boaz. And her mourning turned into exaltation. And remember, we saw that Naomi said, God's kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. And now as for Boaz and Ruth, we see the tension. It's a good tension, but the tension in the story is building. Their relationship is blossoming. And we're waiting to see what's next. Who's going to make the next move here? They didn't have an app to swipe, so someone was going to have to take a risk. They were going to have to talk to each other. Some intentions were going to have to be relayed to put themselves out there to see what was going to happen. And the way this all happens may come as a surprise. And so we see that this morning in chapter 3. We'll read as we go along. And the first point I want us to see is in verses 1 through 5. And that is that we don't just stand there. Do something. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. Now, there is no doubt that this entire, entire chapter is filled with some puzzling things for the modern reader. There's some speculation as to what everything means exactly, but there is no reason for us to think anything more of what it actually says than, than what we read in the plain text of Scripture. And we'll get to the details and explain the significance of some of the actions that take place. And we'll look at what, Boaz, uh, what Ruth does and how Boaz Response. But here in the first few verses, we need to think about where we are in terms of timeline at this point. Notice in verse 2 that Naomi points out that Boaz would be winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Well, what does that tell us? There's an indication here that we're nearing the end of the harvest season. And so we're likely several weeks down the road on the timeline from where we began from their first encounter. And yet, at this point, nothing else has happened in terms of progress in their relationship. However, now the harvest is close to being over. Naomi begins to look out for the good and well-being of her daughter-in-law, and she's no longer thinking just about herself. So Naomi devises a plan. And let's be clear. This is also about her family being preserved, something from her husband's family line being preserved. Since not only he but her two sons are now dead, they don't have any children of their own, Ruth is really her last shot at any form of family preservation. And it seems like she's going to have to encourage Ruth to do something in order to move this along a little bit. And think about it from Ruth's perspective. Living with her mother-in-law for the rest of her life wasn't the ideal situation. And it appears that Naomi is taking notice of that. Now let's remember that Naomi recognized this very thing uh, back in chapter 1. Remember she encouraged both of her daughters-in-law, go back, go back to Moab, go back to your family, you're a Moabite, 
It'll be easier for you. There will be people who will marry you. You know the traditions. You know the customs. There's nothing for you in Bethlehem because there's nothing for me in Bethlehem. I have nothing to give you. Remember, she even brought up the scenario. She said, even if I met a man tonight and got pregnant and had twin sons, would you wait around until they were old enough to marry? Go back. So she knew even then that this was not an ideal situation. And yet here we see her with Ruth and an opportunity presents itself. Naomi's trying to help Ruth find a husband in Bethlehem, and she sees an opening. And in verse 1, she expresses her sentiment, her desire for Ruth. My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? This isn't a small thing. A young, widowed Moabite woman in Bethlehem doesn't just find a husband. And it's important, too, if you think about the history of the Moabites alongside the Israelites. Uh, Numbers 25, we learn about Moabite women. They led the Israelite men into sexual immorality and idolatry. This is their history. In fact, the very origin of the Moabite women are, uh, it goes back to that, sh- that shameful, uh, drunken incest between Lot and his oldest daughter. You remember in Genesis 19, this was the, the, this was the founding of the Moabites. So, You can imagine that the opinion of Moabite women isn't very popular. It It doesn't rank high in Israel. If one showed up in town and you you took her as a wife, it was likely a little bit awkward to say the least. A few of the guys in your squad would probably have some questions to ask you about the kind of girls you were interested in. But remember, this is the Cinderella story the unlikely woman that is taken away by the handsome prince. Nobody expects what's about to happen. So Naomi devises this plan. Ruth can't just wait around. She needs to make sure that Boaz knows that she's interested. And this is fascinating because I think what's going on is that Boaz, both being a man of godly character and a man that was likely significantly older than Ruth at this point, He probably just assumed that there wasn't any way that she was going to have any interest in him him at all, and so nothing happened. He's not presuming here. So Naomi is telling Ruth, don't just stand there. You need to do something so that he knows. But Ruth wasn't going to walk up to Boaz in the field and throw herself at him and say, marry me, so what could she do? Naomi told Ruth to go quietly in the dark of night to be covered by a cloak to the place where he would be winnowing, the threshing floor. He's going to eat, he's going to feast, he's going to drink some wine, and when he lays down after you've anointed yourself with oil, in other words, you've cleaned yourself up, you've made yourself beautiful and presentable, go where he is, uncover his feet, and lay at his feet. And then she says this very interesting statement at the end of verse 4. She says, and he will tell you what to do. Now, this probably raises a lot of questions, right? Is this the ancient form of Tinder? (laughs) Is she putting herself out there and telling Boaz that she's available and he can do whatever he'd like? Is that what Naomi has in mind here for Ruth? 
Some people try to make that kind of argument here, but I think it's a ludicrous suggestion given the people that are involved and the circumstances in which all of this happens. Now, certainly, it is not inconceivable that any man could have an ill motive or be succumb with temptation in these circumstances. It's not inconceivable that especially after a hard day of work and a night of feasting and drinking, nobody else around, here's a beautiful young woman that something could have happened. I don't deny that this is odd. I don't deny that this is a risky strategy and the story could turn out very different than it does. But there's a lot tied up here. Remember, remember who Boaz is. He is the closest thing Naomi and Ruth have to a kinsman redeemer. And we talked last week about that important role. So he is the most likely candidate to become Ruth's husband, or so they assume at that point. So the family name, the family legacy would continue according to Hebrew custom. That, above all else, is Naomi's goal, to find Ruth a godly husband to secure the future of the family legacy. Now we might be left to ask, why didn't Naomi just talk to Boaz? Why not a more conventional way of approaching this entire situation instead of this very suggestive tactic in the middle of the night? I mean, anything could have happened, really. The temptation would have been very strong. The likelihood of, of him mistaking her advance, casting her out away completely, that was very likely. There were simply no guarantees that when Ruth came to Boaz in this way, that they were going to conduct themselves with purity. And yet, Naomi's response is, clean yourself up, go lay at his feet, and she was assured that he will tell you what to do next. There's this certainty, there's this, there's this assumption and this assurance that he's going to know what's right and that he's going to tell her how to do it. But let's be clear, this is a, this is a sexually tempting strategy. There's no way around that reality here. We're going to get some clues later as to what's going on more specifically, but we can't pretend like they are superhumans. There is risk involved. And as, as, we've, as we've said, there's a lot involved, and yet the risk they've determined is worth it. It's worth it because the situation here is somewhat desperate. The options are limited. Boaz is their best hope. So I think we have to be careful about putting too much on Naomi in terms of any kind of ungodly motives here. But still, we have to recognize how risky the move is. But regardless, we see that Ruth is ready. She's not just going to stand there. She's going to do something. Ruth was ready to act, and so she tells Naomi, I will do it. Now, this is a general principle of life that we all need to be clued in on. Sometimes our tendency as Christians is to just want to sit back and wait on God to work in something without our actually doing anything. More times than not, we're, we're afraid of failure or rejection as opposed to trusting God. And so it's just more convenient and it sounds more spiritual to say that we're just trusting the Lord. We're just trusting the Lord. I'm not going to do anything to find a mate. I'm just trusting the Lord. I'm not going to talk to anyone. They'll come. But we have to remember that God works through means. And that means is often our being a little bit risky, taking a chance, knowing that in the end things could go very differently or quite the opposite of what we assume, or they could go far better than anything we could ever imagine. And listen, it's possible 
for us to do this without being sinful, without compromising our values, our Christian principles, but it does mean that our trust in God is in our praying for wisdom, asking for guidance, going forward with our plans and trusting that he will help us to see things in a way that is faithful, in a way that is applying the principles of Scripture. And we're trusting that he will provide for our needs and work out all that is going to happen for our good, for his glory, to the ends that he has designed. And so ultimately we can trust the Lord that in the midst of us trying things and doing things, that he's going to do the right thing, whatever that is, even if in our eyes it's a failure. So often Christians are prone to paralysis in life because we don't want to fail. We don't want to be rejected. But the Lord seems to show us time and time again in Scripture, we need to press on. Don't just stand there, do something. We can say that about a lot of different areas of life. Stop standing around and start working things out and trust the Lord with the outcome and He will surprise you. He will surprise you. Well, let's look at verses 6 through 13 where we see that self-control and respect for others are godly virtues. Look at verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So Boaz has finished this long day of threshing. He had a feast and he drank some wine. And in fact, in verse 7, it says that his heart was merry, which means that he had more than a little bit of wine. He had a lot of wine and he went to sleep. And in came Ruth in the middle of the night. And in verse 8, look again, it says, At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Now, I don't know about you, but I think it is a reasonable thing to assume that this wasn't a common occurrence. It would have likely caught him off guard a little bit. Maybe at first he assumed that his heart was a little too merry. Maybe he was dreaming all of this or seeing things, but he had a natural response, right? Who are you? What are you doing here? And here's where we see that for Ruth, this wasn't about a night of passion, This wasn't about trying to woo him or cajole him through some kind of sexual interaction, but rather this is a gesture or a a signification of what she was hoping for based on Jewish custom. Ruth doesn't leave this situation ambiguously. She tells him straight away what she's there for. I am Ruth, your servant. 
Remember me. We've interacted out in the field. You know who I am. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now remember back in chapter 2, Boaz said that he knew who Ruth was because she was a girl that left Moab and came to join the people of God. He said of her that you are one under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You came under our Lord. And so that language is being used, coming under the wings of God. And so now she uses that same kind of language as a gesture, the covering of herself with his cloak. This was This was an indication that she desired to be married to him, that he would take her as his wife. When someone wanted to marry someone else, unlike our kind of proposal with an engagement ring, that's our custom. Their custom was that when one wanted to marry the other, that the male would cover the woman with his cloak. He would sort of put the corner of his robe on her, and that would show that she is being covered by him. That's what she's asking him to do here. And she's putting herself in that position. So this isn't about some kind of passion. This isn't some scandalous romp in the middle of the night. This is a very self-controlled, albeit a very forward projection of Ruth, making her intentions very clear from the outset. Her goal was a commitment to marriage. She wanted to come under his wing. She wanted to be under his provision, his protection for her and for Naomi just as a kinsman redeemer would do. Now remember, we said last week that Boaz, technically, he was not committed by law to be a kinsman redeemer for Ruth and Naomi because he wasn't a direct brother to Elimelech. And more than that, Ruth was a, she's a foreign woman and her Israel, her Jewish husband had already died. And so if this were a more cut and dry case, the whole plan wouldn't have needed to take place at all, Right? Nevertheless, Ruth approaches him as a kinsman redeemer and appealed to that aspect of their relationship. Ruth, relying on his godliness and and his generosity, was hoping that he would act as if he were a kinsman redeemer directly to her, even though he wasn't obligated. Now here's the thing. It is still a bit odd in our culture for a woman to be really forward in terms of communicating a desire for a relationship with a man. But in their culture, completely unheard of. The fact that Ruth is approaching Boaz, completely unheard of. It was something that just did not happen. So this is a very odd situation in this regard. But again, the circumstances, the situation is desperate. And so when Boaz asks who she was, she just lets it all out. She doesn't hold back. She just says everything. I'm Ruth. I'm, I'm, remember, I'm the lady. I've been in your field. I want to marry you as if you were my kinsman redeemer. I hope that you'll do that because I need a husband and I, I really like you. I think you kind of like me so we can make this happen. <laughs> right? She just lets it all kind of spill out to him so that he knows, here's why I'm here. No, no ill motives, no other intentions. And with amazing self-control and absolute respect for Ruth, he doesn't embarrass her. He doesn't push her away. He doesn't demand anything from her at all. He says, my daughter. Such a sweet disposition toward her. He has no intention of taking advantage of her. As he's already shown in this provision that he's given all along his ways of interacting with her, my daughter, God bless you. 
And then he points out what is so appealing about her and how she is approaching him. She didn't go after the young men. She wasn't out there on the free market. She wasn't, she wasn't swiping on Tinder. She was looking for a godly man with whom she could live her life in a godly marriage. And it seems that Boaz is impressed by this. He's flattered. He's honored. And so he wants to do what he can to care for her. After all, a younger man would have been a better prospect for her. As we've said before, it's likely that Boaz didn't, didn't act first toward her because he assumed probably that she wouldn't be interested because he's much older. But Ruth wanted a man of character, a man who was filled with godly virtue. And all these things were obvious in Boaz. We've seen his character as we've walked along. He tells her in verse 11, I will do it. And notice what he says. You have a reputation. People know who you are, that you are a worthy woman. Those are some great words, aren't they, ladies? Remember in Proverbs 31, one of the ways that the woman in Proverbs 31 is praised is that she is said to be a woman whose works praise her in the gates. So Boaz is saying to Ruth, in essence, you are a Proverbs 31 woman in the flesh. People have taken notice that you are that kind of woman. And it wasn't because she was loud and pompous. She wasn't flaunting herself around town. She wasn't dressing scandalously for everyone to take notice. No, she was humbly submitting herself in service to Naomi. She was working hard without complaint for the benefit of her and her mother-in-law. She was bringing home large quantities of food every day. She was likely out and about town buying and trading and getting all that was needed for their household. Very quickly, people took notice. And remember, she wouldn't have looked like the Jewish women. She had a different look about her, making her all the more obvious, and it was impressive. She was being talked about, not in a bad way. However, something else arises in the text, and it shows us just how good of a man Boaz really was. Apparently, there was someone else in the family line that was closer to Naomi than he was. And so he wanted to do his due diligence to make sure, to check with that man and to determine whether or not he was going to be the kinsman redeemer instead. And I'm sure Ruth would have heard this and she was probably filled with a little bit of anxiety over this, right? What if this guy says, yes, I don't even know who he is. I like Boaz. I really want this to work out, right? But even here, even now, we see the kind of guy that he is. This isn't left to Ruth and Naomi to figure out. No, Boaz is going to go and search this man out, and he's going to have a chat with him to determine how this is going to be. Now, if the man wanted to redeem her, Boaz tells her, we're going to follow tradition. But if he doesn't want to do that, I will step in. I will take you myself, you will become my wife. And so the bigger picture is being fulfilled here. This very important thing about having a redeemer is being fulfilled, namely that Ruth and Naomi were now going to be taken care of one way or another. So we see two things. First, we see their self-control. This could have been a completely different story, right? This could have been a whole different situation, but neither of them was in this to fulfill a fleshly desire. This wasn't about physical intimacy. And we would expect that, right? Wine, beautiful women, a beautiful woman at his feet in the middle of the night. And the other thing we see is that 
the absolute respect that is shown, and especially for Boaz, this great desire that he expresses in his desire to assure the women that they would be taken care of, that their needs are met, that they have a redeemer. Whether, whether it's him or this other man, what was important to him is that they were being cared for. That shows his character. Is that how we think about one another? Is that the way that we think about other people? So often, our disposition toward others is to, to find ways to use them as the objects that we can use for our own ends, whether that's a relationship of intimacy or a business relationship or a friendship, whatever it is, we often have a mentality where we're asking, what will they do for me? And if they don't have anything they can offer me, if they don't have anything that's going to benefit me, I don't need to have a relationship with them. As opposed to what the Bible calls us to, directly opposite of that is that we are dying to ourselves and living to the advantage of other people. That's Boaz's attitude here. Ultimately, this isn't about me. This isn't about me getting what I want, although I do believe there was a very strong attraction to Ruth. But he's willing to give that up if this other man wants to redeem her instead. He wasn't looking at this selfishly. He wasn't trying to manipulate the situation to take advantage of it for his own gain. He wanted what was best for them. He wanted to die to himself, to die to his own desires, and to do what was necessary to make sure that they were cared for. I really think Boaz was such a godly man that the thought of taking advantage of this situation in any way was far from his way of thinking. He wanted what was best for the women. He wanted them to be served and cared for. And this is the way of a true redeemer, isn't it? Laying aside his own way of life, ultimately the true redeemer laying aside his own life. Think of Christ. Think of how selfless Christ was as our Redeemer. Think of how selfless Christ is as our Redeemer, constantly laying aside, laying aside that we might take up what He has given to us. And we see that here at the end in verses 14 through 18, that the Redeemer never sends His bride away empty. Look at verse 14. So she lay at His feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle this matter today. And so in the morning, Boaz and Ruth wake up, and he sends her away with a gift. He gave her six measures of barley, which is about 80 pounds Think of that. That is a lot of barley. And that is a strong woman. <laughs> she carried it all the way home. But this is a gift of provision, isn't it? It's Boaz communicating even more clearly to Ruth that he intends to ensure that she is provided for, and not just her, but also Naomi. It's Boaz going above and beyond to continue to act as a genuine redeemer. 
And then this chapter ends as it did similarly in chapter 2. She goes home to Naomi and they talk about all that had happened. And you could only imagine how long that conversation went on. Now there's a lot going on here in the language of the story, right? Remember when Naomi and Ruth, remember when they first got back to Bethlehem? Naomi said that she came back empty. Those were her words. But what's happening now? Verse 17, Ruth said to Boaz, or excuse me, Boaz told Ruth that he didn't want her to go back how? Empty to Naomi. Don't go back empty. Go back full. The Lord continued to provide. And in fact, he's providing more than food. Remember Boaz's response? He says, there is a redeemer nearer than I. And while... Of course, he's talking in the immediate context of another man, another man who would be a kinsman redeemer in the family. This really takes on a different context when we understand the place of the true redeemer in Scripture, right? All throughout the story, from the very beginning, there has been a redeemer closer than Boaz. A redeemer nearer to Naomi and Ruth who has hovered in the shadows of the narrative all along, behind all the human agents, reaching out to his children, never allowing them to be empty-handed, showing them grace upon grace upon grace in his providence. And we'll see in the end of this epic Cinderella story that as this turns out, this is not just for the good of Ruth. This is not just for the good and provision of Naomi. This is not just for the good of Boaz, but this is for the good of all of mankind. This relationship matters to you and it matters to me. Not just for the principles that we gain, but because of the Savior that is given as a result. Something else is emerging for us as we walk through this story, and it's where we're going to end this morning. The bigger Cinderella story. And, And it's not boy meets girl and they live happily ever after. The real love story behind the scenes is with a true Redeemer that never sends His bride away empty. It is the love of God for His children. It is the love that feeds us daily and clothes us in the righteousness of Christ, in His providence, His love. His love may bring us godly friends to encourage us. His love may bring us a godly spouse with whom to share our lives. And for those things we thank God. But God's love took its fullest shape in the sending of His only Son, Jesus Christ. His love for us took him much further than a giant pile that was being threshed out at midnight. It caused him to leave the glories of heaven and to come down and to live as an ordinary worker. It led him to come as a baby in Bethlehem, the very place where all of this is taking place, where he found no refuge. Unlike Ruth, There was no place for Jesus to rest his head in Bethlehem, no godly Boaz to protect him. Instead, he had to make do with a temporary place in a stable before he was driven out, having to flee for his life even as a baby. And this love caused Jesus to abandon his eternal glory, to become a servant as someone with no reputation, despised and rejected by men. The same love of God took Jesus 
all the way to the cross. And there in the midst of a darkness far deeper than any ordinary midnight, he offered up himself for the sins of his people. And there he was abandoned by God the Father who had to turn aside his face because he could not look upon his own son, disfigured as he was, but bearing all of our sin. Jesus didn't just risk his life, he gave his life willingly. Why? Because God was so committed to saving sinners like us that this is the only way it could be done. It is because God loved so much that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. It is because of God's covenant faithfulness to the undeserving. Do you know this love of God? Disfigured by sin, though it is, your heart is all that you have to give. And He calls you to give it to Him. He will be your Redeemer. He will bring you under His wing and redeem you, receiving you into His family. He will cover you with refuge. He will spread the robe of Christ's righteousness to cover your nakedness. No matter how undeserving you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, God will welcome you for the sake of Christ. As we sang before, without money, without money, come to Jesus Christ and buy. And buy what? And buy with nothing that you offer, but all that he has paid, the righteousness of Christ that is provided for you so that you need not try to live a righteousness of your own, but can live upon the perfect righteousness, the only perfect righteousness in which you find life before God. If you're not a Christian, the call on you today is to look to Christ that you might live. Look to Christ as a redeemer, as a covering, as the only hope for everlasting life. And if you're a Christian this morning, brothers and sisters, may we all rejoice afresh this morning at our great and glorious redeemer who has given all that we might have life everlasting. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for reminding us this morning of our great Redeemer, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has covered us in His righteousness. May we go forward today seeking to bring Him glory and to make known the glorious riches of our King. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.